You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. The rest of you, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in the Old Testament. If you don't own a Bible, there are are a few on the back table. Those are our gift to you. I want you to go grab one. Uh, Whether you grab one now or later, please don't leave here without it if you don't own one. And if if either of those ways are, are either uncomfortable for you or seem strange, the text is also in your order of worship. It's in your bulletin. However you're going to have it in front of you, though, I'd encourage you to have it in front of you. Look, everybody in this room, we're, we're in a bunch of different places, right? So what we're about to do here, for some of us, is a little strange. Um, for some of us, we think we know what's coming. And for others of us, it seems rather normal. So let me explain what it is that we're about to do. What we're about to do here is what's called Christian preaching. Um, and Christian preaching is different from, say, like uh, political commentary, Right? Political commentary is what you could hear if you weren't here right now. You'd be home watching TV and you'd turn on something, some talking head would get up there and give you their opinion on X, Y, or Z. Christian preaching is different than that. Uh, Christian preaching isn't, the the point of this is not for uh, me to give you my opinions on X, Y, or Z. As a matter of fact, if that's all we get, we're wasting our time. The point of Christian preaching, in fact, is to... um, is to explain and apply God's Word to us. And the reason why that has nothing to do with opinion is that we believe that this, this Bible, this Word, is God's Word. It is inerrant, it is inspired, it is authoritative. Okay? That means that it comes to us from God. It is God's revelation of Himself. He is, he is revealing Himself to us. Um, which is one of the reasons why, in this church, uh, if you've been coming here for a while and you're like, man, why do they keep... Sticking in this book of Ecclesiastes. Like, what we do is something called expository preaching. It's not the only thing that we do here. We do some topical stuff here and there, but primarily we do something called expository preaching, which is we'll take a book of the Bible and we'll go more or less verse by verse through it. Now, one of the reasons that we do that is because we believe that if God has revealed himself in his word, then it is that it is up to that it would be good for us to actually see what he says about himself, right? The problem is that if we just do something like more on topics, what we're going to end up hearing is what, um, what is most important to us, or rather, what is most important to me, because I'm the one picking the topics, right? Nobody wants to hear that, least of all me. And so we go through the Bible verse by verse, because as you go through that, you get what in our tradition is called the whole counsel of God, which means there are going to be certain things in there I don't want to preach about. Honestly, I've preached about things I do not want to preach about. There's lots of things I would rather not talk about that are very uncomfortable for me to talk about. That I know are uncomfortable for me because they're uncomfortable for you and I want you to think well of me. This is true, okay? It's one of the things I struggle with. But because it's God's Word, we, we believe that going through it verse by verse is one way that we allow God to speak to us. And so that, 
That is why we are going verse by verse through Ecclesiastes. We've been doing it since September. We'll be done at the end of April. Okay? Um, And right now, we're about a little more than halfway done. Okay? So let's get to that. Ecclesiastes. This morning, our teacher moves to something that many of us expect to be talked about in this place, which is morality. Because for many of us, that's all that church is really about, right? They're here to keep us moral or to engage us with morals. Uh, The problem is that most of us do not expect to talk about it the way the teacher in Ecclesiastes, the writer, does this morning. Because he says that ultimately morality is meaningless. So if you have your place in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, if you stand in honor of God's word, that's our habit here. We're going to be reading verses uh, verse 15 in chapter 7 through uh, chapter 8 verse 1. Let's hear it. This is God's word. In my meaningless life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. But surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So I turned my heart to know and search out and seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but a sinner is taken in by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. This is God's word, given so that we might flourish. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that during this time, you would let uh, the gospel of Jesus be foremost. We're in this room from different places. We need you to come and speak to us. Everyone in this room is in need of the same thing. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we ask, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, preach that gospel to our hearts. Let Jesus and his cross come forward and the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord, for yours are the words of eternal life. You alone have them. And so to you we come. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. All right. In the 1980s, one of the staples of uh, Saturday evening entertainment, and especially of Saturday night entertainment, was Saturday Night Live, and one of the staples on that show was Dana Carvey's Church Lady. Now, some of you are too young for that. YouTube it when you get home, okay? Uh, The Church Lady was the stereotype of what it meant to be a Christian. Judgmental, uh, self-righteous, and uptight. Really, really uptight. And ultimately, everything that bothered the church lady dealt with morality. Now, of course, the joke of this whole thing was that it was really backwards. Like, she's backwards, and her morality is outdated, and da-da-da-da-da. But the point is well taken. Because church ladies seem to assume that morality... And pleasing the Lord was the same thing. 
while all the time angry at the immoral. Angry that the immoral were flourishing, and the most famous of these was Rob Lowe. Again, you can YouTube it, okay? Um, During the 80s, he was a big deal. Does that idea sound familiar to you? Because the overriding belief in our culture, including many of us, is that if there is a God, what he or she wants from humanity is some semblance of morality. Some kind of just go be good. And when there's conflict over what we would define as the good, we fall back on, well, as long as you're sincere, right? If you're sincere in in what you think is good, then that's the point. The point, though, in all of this is that being moral, being good, having a good record should count for something in our thoughts. You know, if you've been coming here a while, you may be convinced finally that things like power and sex and money and even religion can't hold your hopes. But morality? Shouldn't we at least be good little boys and girls? It must be able to do it, right? No, it can't. This morning we're going to look at this in in three ways. We're going to look, there's an outline in your bulletin, that's helpful. We're going to look at the moral problem. We're going to look at a moral prison. And then finally we're going to look at a new morality. Okay? We've got a lot to cover, so let's get started with the moral problem by asking, what's the point? Look down at verses 15 to 18. The, tr- the teacher says this. In my meaningless life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. All right, now stop there. What I have just said literally could have been said by the church lady. So what we need to do is we need to define some terms before we can get started. The word righteous is a very churchy word. <laughs> uh, the, the only way that many of us have even a semblance of understanding of what that means is if we put the word self in front of it with a hyphen, and then we get, oh, righteous, right, self-righteous. Now, it isn't, you know, at the same time as righteousness, what I, like I alluded to earlier, evil doing can have many different definitions. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to, it's going to be important for us to clear the ground and, and figure out what he's talking about here, Okay. Here's a real easy, quick definition. Something in the Bible that is evil or wicked or some semblance of evil doing is something that is done for one's own advantage at the cost of others. Okay? Evil is something that is done for one's own advantage at the cost of others. And that may mess with some of your definitions, right? Because I thought evil was things like, like murder and, you know, like bad stuff. Well, it is. It's really bad stuff. Sometimes it just doesn't look that bad. It's things done to advantage yourself at the cost of others. And at the same time, righteousness is understood, um, first and foremost, as faithfulness to God and others. You know, Jesus said the greatest of God's commandment was this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? To love him with all of who you are. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And to love your neighbor as yourself means to seek their flourishing. And so righteousness is other-centered, beginning with God, and wickedness is self-centered. Okay? Does that make sense? So I should say that you can believe yourself other-centered, however, and still be counted as wicked. Okay? Think about it for a second. If you focus on others because it makes you feel good or helps you assuage your guilt or something like that, you really aren't other-centered at all. You're focused on yourself using others to get what you need, which is a feel-good or, or some sense of getting rid of your guilt, okay? Now, 
that being said, now that's out of the way. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, I see people doing all the right stuff and dying and people doing all the wrong stuff and living. Okay? Now, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. The Bible is honest about reality. It's incredibly honest about reality. It doesn't try and be reductionistic about reality. Now, that is not to say that Christians are not reductionistic. Christians are very reductionistic because we don't like chaos. We like to control things and make things seem really easy. They're not. The Bible, however, is not like that. Okay? It does not try to lie about the way things are and oversimplify things. The problem that the, this guy who's writing this is having is that the person who is doing everything right seems, doesn't seem to be getting anything from it. Which is why he says the thing just in the next verse about not being overly righteous or not being overly wicked. What he means is not go for moderation. Right? As if he's saying, look, just do your evil in moderation and it's going to be okay. That, that's not what he's saying. Okay? What he is talking about is exerting too much effort. So when he says, don't be overly righteous, what he's saying is, don't waste your energy trying so hard. It's not going to work for you anyway. You're, you're wasting so much effort trying to be, quit it. It's not going to do anything for you. Think about that. Because what he's giving voice to is the same assumption that all of us have. We do good, however we define that. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. And we think that good should return to us. Because we think the universe is governed by scales and not by a person. And if the universe is governed by scales, if I do good, things will go well. And if I don't, things will go badly. Friends, that is not biblical faith. That is something called karma. Okay? It's not Christian at all. But look. Some of us don't believe the Bible, some of us misunderstand the Bible, or some of us have assumptions about what it says because we've heard because of what we've heard from somebody or read what some blog tells us. And some of us simply have disagreements uh, about what it actually does say, but ultimately it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. The, the world is governed not by scales, but by a person. Uh, and so even if we don't agree by what it means to do the good, we still have some semblance of, of thinking that these things are all going to play out the same way. It just seems to be a human thing, not a Christian thing or a Buddhist thing or a Muslim. It's just a, it's just a human thing that we believe that somewhere we have, a, we have this record, right? We've got a rap sheet somewhere. And what we need it to say is that all the good stuff on it will outweigh the bad stuff. And if it does, things will go well for us. The problem is, if we're being honest, is the same problem that we see here. There doesn't seem to be a necessary correlation between our supposed morality and the results in our lives. And so the writer is saying to us, why are you trying so hard? It's not going to matter anyway. It's not going to matter. And here is where we are tempted to cry foul, right? Right? I mean, look, I'm a good guy. I follow the rules. I do right. Now, some of you right now are like, Rick, I didn't follow the rules, and I know I didn't follow the rules. Okay, I, I got that. I hear you. I'll get to that in a second. Just stick with me. But the next section in our, in our text unmasks the problem in all of this. So look at, look at verse 20 in particular, because the teacher says there, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Okay? Now stop. Now don't check out on me yet. 
And some of you are really tempted to do that right now. Don't check out because you need to hear this. Because this is not the church lady. This is not the church lady. Some of you will remember that uh, you've been here, that this guy is writing to find something to hold his hopes. This dude is looking at life and he's like, apart from a personal God, we're going to put God out of the picture for a minute. Don't want to think about him. There's got to be something in this world that can hold the weight of my hopes. Something to make me right. Something that does not involve a personal ultimate God. And this means that when he says that there's not a righteous person who doesn't sin, he is not doing that from a religious assumption, but from an observational one. He is making an observation, not a religious statement. Okay? You with me? Now that said, let's focus on what he says. He says that it is certain that there is no one righteous who doesn't sin. Now, before I actually get to what he's saying, and quite frankly, it's nowhere near as controversial as it may sound, uh, let's define the S word here, shall we? Because when many of us hear the word sin, we think um, things like misused sexuality or drug use or violence or something like that, right? That's really convenient for most of us because when in, the, in a nice little middle class world that gives us a pass, doesn't it? We worry about sin, and if it is, we can kind of keep it hidden. The problem is that's not the Bible's definition of sin. So we think sin is about rules, but that's only half true, okay? Um, let's think about the famous set of rules in the Bible, right? Ten commandments. Think about them. Just, just stick with me. Think, think with me for a minute. Ten commandments. Why those? Why those ten? Like, why don't murder? Why don't commit adultery? Because, you see, when we divorce the rules from the story, they become arbitrary. Like someone just threw a dart at a board at a list of behaviors, and he's like, murder. Yeah, don't do that one. It doesn't hold together. But they aren't arbitrary. You see, the Bible teaches us that God created all things from nothing. And at the high point of creation, he created humanity. He created humanity, and he called everything, including us, good. We were created in his image to be in dependent relationship with him and to reflect him, to be like him. Okay? And all was good until we were tricked into believing a lie. That we didn't have to be his image. You and I didn't have to be his image. We could be his equal. And in fact, we must be his equal because he isn't out for our good at all. You can't depend on him. He's just out for himself. And when we believed this lie, we turned away from God and betrayed him. And this is what the Bible calls sin. It's not so much about breaking a rule as it is a relationship. It's not so much about breaking rules as a heart. We aren't betraying a code. We aren't betraying a legislation. We are betraying a person. So why don't murder? Because God is the giver of life. Why don't commit adultery? Because God is a, like we saw this morning, a promise-keeping, a promise-making, a promise-keeping God. He is faithful to us. Why don't lie? Because God is the truth. You see, when we turn away from these commandments, we are turning away both from the person they reflect and turning away from the way we were designed to live. You with me? When we betray those rules, we're not just betraying the rules, we're betraying the person who reflects those rules. We were called to be like him, and he doesn't murder, and he doesn't lie, and, when, and he doesn't commit adultery, and, and he doesn't covet things, and because... 
of all that he is, is is like the opposite of those. And so when we say, yeah, but you know what? This little white lie is not going to bother me that much. What we're saying is, God, I don't care about who you are. Who you are, the way you're, ah, I can do it my way. It's betraying a person. Now, one more thing about this. The Bible is clear on the fact that these commandments are universal. What I mean by that is they're not like, well, those are good for Christians or those are good for those who think the Bible's okay but not good for all of us. No, no, no. They're universal. They are universal because of the fact they are based on the God who created all things. Okay? In fact, it is not outrageous to think. As a matter, It's core to believing this. In fact, you cannot have a universal morality. You cannot... Hold others to your morality unless you hold to a personal God. Because persons give value to things. Persons give value to things. In other words, if you're here this morning and you're not sure about a personal God, then quite frankly, you do not have a right to get angry when people violate your moral conventions. You literally do not have a right to it. Why? Because who's, all you're talking about is the difference between someone who likes pie and someone who doesn't. Well, I like that people... Respect my property rights. Good for you. Maybe I don't. Who's to say your, your reason is better than mine? I mean, I, I know why I believe that. They're based on the fact that there's an ultimate person who gives value to those things. Without a God, all morality is simply preference. If you don't get mad that people don't all like pie, you can't, shouldn't probably get mad if they don't respect your property rights. Okay? Now here's the thing. The teacher says there isn't anyone who doesn't sin. That there is no one who is righteous and doesn't sin. Another way of saying that, and I said this wasn't controversial, and you'll see in a second. Another way of saying that is nobody's perfect. Okay? That's not so bad, is it? Nobody's perfect. We we all kind of think that, right? Yeah, I mean, nobody's perfect. Of course, along with it, we also think, well, I'm not perfect. I'm a lot better than the next guy. I mean, nobody's perfect. In other words, don't look too hard at me. Look at him instead. Right? We think that the point of reference for whether we're due for good things is the guy to our left. <laughs> right? Well, your left, right? As I've said before, many of us, if not all of us, believe that the world works like somebody trying to outrun a bear. Right? You don't need to outrun the bear. You just need to outrun the guy next to you. And the bear's going to get him. Right? That's what, the way we think the, the world works. Um, but here's the problem. It's in the case study in verses 21 to 22, because that's what's going on here. Here's what he's saying. In verses 21 to 20, he's saying, Be careful in looking at others and judging them by a particular standard, because you haven't kept it either. Be careful listening for your servants cursing, because you've cursed others too. An an old pastor used this illustration. Imagine that you had a microphone around your neck that only recorded when you judged someone else by a particular standard. In other words, like, you you judge someone else by your standard. And then, when you died, the Lord said, look, look, buddy, I'm going to cut you a break. Here's what we're going to do. We're not going to judge you by my standard. What we're going to do is we're going to see how well you did with your own. And he hits play on that recording. That's probably terrifying if we think about it. The reality is this. We all have a morality. And not one of us can keep even our own morality. 
Listen, right now, many of you have justifications running through your heads, right? But wait, Rick, you don't. You do not have to justify yourself before me. Okay, I am in the same boat you are. I can't keep my own either. The teacher here in Ecclesiastes is saying that you and I are not only not only are we not perfect, that we can't keep our own standards of morality. We are more broken than we know, and we are not owed jack. That is what he is saying. But that brings us to a moral prison. Look at verses 23 to 28. This passage here is confusing, okay? Scholars are going to tell you that it's confusing. Um, and, and uses what seems like cultural colloquialisms that no one really knows we're so far culturally distant. But the main point is right there in verse 24. Because the teacher is saying this, I don't understand. I don't get it. How can we not even keep our own morality? How can we be so inconsistent that we think good things should happen to us because we're so good, but we don't even keep the rules that we like to keep? This is what he means when he says he's trying to get to the scheme of things, that he's, that he's been trying to dig into deep things, very deep things. He's like, I can't figure it out. He's trying to figure out what's wrong with us. Because see, here's the problem. You and I, we are all deeply ambivalent when it comes to morality. We all kind of sense that we have this record and we need to fill it with good stuff. But at the same time, we want to totally define what is good, when it is okay not to do what is good, and what good you should do but shouldn't be, shouldn't be expected of me. It is like we cannot get around this notion that we aren't right, that we don't measure up. Now, some of us try and avoid this by keeping our failures secret, right? We just kind of keep everything hidden. Uh, we we want to keep, keep our, our, our failures kind of at a distance from ourselves. Others of us try and work against that by, by flaunting our brokenness to pretend that we don't care. But while we do that, we all the while struggle with deep feelings of shame and unworthiness. Outwardly, we're saying, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do what, what I want. And deep inside, you're like, I am so messed up. If anyone knew how badly, truly I was messed up, I would just be undone. At root, we are all inconsistent beings. And where this comes from is given to us in verse 29. Look at the source of the bondage. He says this, See, this alone I found. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Okay? Check back in if you've checked out. This is the key. All right? This is the key. Stay with me. He is coming back to the story that I mentioned. Why do we seem stuck in this state? He's saying because we stuck ourselves there. Now remember what I said, that humanity believed the lie. God is not out for your good. He doesn't love you. He's only out to protect and provide for himself. He's not there for you. He's using you. We believed that lie. We betrayed God. We turned away from him. And when that happened, two things happened. And these two things, at least one of them, we know intuitively. We became guilty. This is why the record. This is why the record. This is why we think, I've got to fill my rap sheet with as good of things as I can and hope that you, don't, you can just ignore the bad ones. We know that we don't measure up, that we've turned away from God, that we've sought life apart from Him, that we've broken relationship with Him. And so now we're guilty of betraying the one who created us to be in loving dependence on Him. It's the second thing that we don't often get. It's the second thing that happened. Because the Bible tells us not only are are we guilty, but something else happened that fateful day in the garden. 
we were changed. You see, God made us upright. It means He made us righteous. He made us innocent. He made us perfect. But we sought many schemes. When we turned away from Him, humanity began living out of that lie. Remember the lie? God doesn't care, God, God doesn't care for you. He's out to get you. You can and you must be equal with Him. We began living out of that. That's our presupposition now. We are all born believing this. I don't have to convince you of this. I don't care how old you are. This is what we are born believing. I've got to do it myself. I've got to figure it out myself. God is out to get us. And so when we betrayed God, we entered into a state that the Bible calls sin. Now, this is crucial to the whole thing. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 15. Okay, Matthew is one of the Gospels, one of the first books of the New Testament. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. In chapter 15, he says it this way. That out of our hearts come all sorts of immoralities. All sorts of bad things. In other words, it's not the bad things that mess the heart up. And the heart's the center of our being. He says it's the heart from which all the bad stuff comes. In other words, we do bad things because we have bad hearts. We sin because we're sinners. We betray God because we're betrayers. We start in that position, and everything flows from it. And the key starting point to that state is the desire and drive to be independent. Which means that all of our trying to gain moral status on our own, listen to me, is sin. When you try to engage in morality apart from God and say, I can earn something, I can make myself, my my rap sheet can be more full of good than bad, it is sin. There's nothing right about that. The Bible says that you and I are, by nature, in bondage, in slavery to this state, and we need someone outside of ourselves to rescue us. This is why the prophet Isaiah said that even on our best day, even our best righteousness like filthy rags. I'd love to work out what exactly he meant by filthy. But it, he, meant, he meant awful. Why? Because morality cannot make us right. If our morality is done apart from God, it is still rebellion against Him. It may look really good and moral. It may look really pleasing to the world. We may look and go, that is the best neighbor I have on my block. And they are. Before God, it's filthy. Because it's done in independence from Him. He doesn't want your rule keeping. He wants you. Morality cannot make us right. It cannot hold our hopes because we can never on our own be moral before God. We are stuck betraying him. We need a rescuer. And that is where the new morality comes into play. Let's look first at a new record. Some of you right now are deeply offended. And can I be honest? I cannot say I am sorry for that. Because the one thing that all of us need is to be deeply offended by Jesus. We all need that. Because some of us are like, Man, if I can never do enough, why does, God, why does God ask me to? Why does He tell me I have to do something I can't? Who says He is? Who told you He's asking you to do something? Who told you He's asking you to be good? 
I didn't. This didn't. That is not what he's saying. God isn't telling you to get your act together. And if someone told you that he was, they are lying to you. You see, if our problem is seeking independence from God, then for that problem to be fixed, we cannot do it on our own. We cannot. That would be more independence. But not just that. It vastly underestimates our betrayal. Listen, when the Bible describes God's relationship with us, he uses the language of marriage. It's the language of marriage. Which means that when we betray him, it's not like coming in late for curfew. Some of you don't yet know what that's like. You will. Okay? You're going to come in late for curfew. Your parents are going to be sitting on the stairs waiting for you. Your watch broke. You know, where's your phone? Like, you couldn't call? It is not like that. It is not like breaking curfew. It is like adultery. More. It is like sleeping around on your spouse and flaunting it in front of everyone. We need to understand that when we offer our morality to God, it is like offering flowers to your spouse on the way home from sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and saying, this will make everything better. So some wilted little petals are going to make the relationship healed. No, 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 no. It won't. But thankfully, right when we messed everything up, God made a promise to make it right. In Genesis 3, right where we broke everything, God says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix what you've broken. What you've broken isn't just a rule. It's relationship with me. And this is why Jesus came. Now look, some of us in this room have been taught that Jesus came to give us some rules to follow to make us good. Right? Or what he did was he came to take the Old Testament, which rules are really harsh, and to bring them down a little bit so they're really all about love. Read what the man said. He said, you've heard it said, don't murder. But let me tell you what. You harbor anger in your heart, you've murdered somebody. You've heard it say, don't commit adultery. That's great, don't do that. But you know what? You look lustfully on another man or another woman. Adultery. Guilty. He's not lowering the bar, friends. He's taking it and he's telling us what the bar actually was in the first place. On the other hand, he did not come to explain rules. He came to keep them. Look, Jesus lived a life that we couldn't. The Bible's clear. He never sinned. The teacher said, surely there's no one righteous who's never sinned. Well, guess what? He lived a long time before Jesus. Jesus came. He never sinned. He was totally righteous all the way to the cross when he loved us fully at cost to himself by dying for us. And when he died, look, I know that there's a lot of, we got some crazy ideas out there today. When he died, it was not as a sign of love. Like as if this is purely, I'm going to show you how much I love you by dying for you. And that's it. If it is that, it was suicide. And friends, suicide is not a sign of love, I know. Okay? He died to take our place before God for every time we didn't meet our own standards or God's. We betrayed God, and Jesus bore the guilt for that betrayal in our place. Okay, now listen, because this is where it ties into what we're talking about. God offers this to us as a gift by faith. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are united to him. The Apostle Paul, one of the writers of the New Testament, says in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, that God made him who knew no sin, 
that would be Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That means He takes our sin, we get His, we get His rap sheet. He takes ours, we get His. We're united to Him, His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His death for sin becomes our death for sin. Do you see that? You know that your record isn't right. It isn't. By faith alone, you can have Jesus' record. And He can take yours away. It's not a clean slate. God's not in the business of giving you a clean slate. I get a do-over. No, no, no. You know what you're going to do with a do-over? The same thing I would do. All the same stuff over again, probably worse. He's not in the business of a do-over. It is a slate that isn't clean. It is filled. It's just filled with the righteousness of Jesus instead of your failures and my failures. And it is all yours by faith. I don't care, how mu- I don't care what has filled your, your record. I don't care how much red is in your ledger. You trust in Jesus and before God it is filled with the perfect righteousness of Christ. It is not about what you can do. It is about what God and Jesus has done. And that leads us to a new motive. I promise I'm I'm wrapping up, okay? That leads us to a new motive. That poor boy hadn't been right since I got his head wet. Okay. (laughs) All right. We need to talk about the new motive because some of you are getting what I'm talking about. It's making sense to you. And right now you're thinking, wait, you're saying I can't earn God's favor, that my morality can't get me anything. And if it's all by faith in the first place, why should I do anything then? Why should I pursue any morality if it can't get me anything? That is a logical question. But you need to listen to this because it's going to blow your mind. If you were moral simply because you thought it would get you good things, that means that you did it because you didn't want bad things, right? Which means that ultimately, you were moral because of the threat of punishment. You with me? I will be moral because I don't want bad things. I will be moral because I don't want God's frown, I want His smile. Following? With me? Okay. Here's the thing. If the threat of punishment was all that kept you moral, then you were moral out of fear which is ultimately selfish, which is immoral. It is wickedness. If your righteousness was done to get something before God, ultimately it was wickedness. Which means that, friend, your problem is not that you need to repent of your wickedness. It's that you have got to repent of your damnable righteousness because it is leading you to hell. You don't have to repent of the bad stuff. You've got to repent of the good stuff that you're trying to get God's smile with. He'll never give it to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that we were broken beyond our ability to make things right, but that He came and lived the life we couldn't, died the death that we dared not, and rose again to make us new. And He did all this for those not who were trying really, really hard to get back to Him, but to those who were constantly betraying Him. The Bible calls us enemies of God. All of us. All of us. And while we were enemies, He died for us and offered us not just pardon, and that would be good. What God offered wasn't just pardon in Christ. He offered to make us His heirs, His children. 
If someone does that for you, someone takes you from enemy deserving death at his hands to child eating his table and enjoying his smile, you will do whatever you can to make that dude happy. Not to get anything from him, because you've gotten everything already from him. Anything less than that is seeking a righteousness apart from Jesus, and it is just betraying him all over again. Friends, morality cannot hold your hopes because ultimately you can never achieve the morality you think you need. But the good news is that Jesus has accomplished it for you and frees you by his grace to then seek to become like him out of love instead of out of fear. Would you pray with me? Lord, in this room we are in different places. We all need the same thing. We need a righteousness not of our own. We all think we can add to our record. The only thing we can add to our record is more betrayal. And so, Lord, we ask that by your grace, you would transform us. You would unite us to Christ. For those of us in this room who have never before trusted in Jesus, I pray that you would do it right now. That you would rescue them right now. But for others of us, Lord, we struggle day in and day out with thinking that we can make ourselves right before you, even though we've, we've trusted in, in Jesus a long time ago. And so all of us need the same thing. We need you, by your Spirit, through your Gospel, to come and make us new. We ask that you do this for the sake of your great name. And out of your love, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Those of us